Hello and welcome to the TRK Mailbag. My name is Tom Savage. Hope you're having a good week. Uh, this TRK Mailbag is from the latest emails and from some of the, well, the latest uh, questions that I could find on the TRK Mailbag channel. If I've missed any, do let me know or send me in new questions that you would like to hear on info at 3 with a TRK Mailbag in the subject line and I will get to it uh, eventually. So, um, the... World Cup, we're right in the middle of it. We're right in the middle of Munster's preseason. A lot of the questions that I've had uh, in the last couple of weeks have been in the build-up to that. In the last couple of days, I've had a couple of emails about the coverage that's been surrounding um, Ireland um, and Scotland from the media with regards to the... basically the idea that they might collude to manufacture a very specific result to get South Africa eliminated from the World Cup. Now, it is certainly possible that the exact points difference and try score bonus points or whatever else could happen um, naturally that would end up knocking Scotland or South Africa out of the World Cup. That could happen in the many millions of permutations of the things that could possibly happen in this game um, on Saturday. However, I think it is absolutely insane to think that Ireland and Scotland would somehow manage to collude but which by the way is illegal not only is it illegal um, if it was discovered it would mean both teams thrown out of the World Cup to get rid of South Africa first of all why would Ireland agree to this in theory right Ireland haven't lost to South Africa since 2016 and that was in South Africa right so the idea that Ireland would be trembling at the thought of a team that we had just beaten being, oh, we need to get them out of the World Cup is mad, right? Second of all, the number of people who would have to be involved in the, in the fixing of this, right? You're talking about all of the players for both Ireland and Scotland. You're talking about at least the head coaching unit of both sides. So we're talking about there's 30 people, then plus your replacements. So you're talking about 46 pe- 46 players, we'll say, plus the extras in the group. It's rounded out to around 50, 55 players would have to at least be involved in the idea that there was something fishy going to happen with a certain signal being given. That means both coaching staffs are involved as well. So we'll say we'll add on another 20 there as well. And never mind the fact that you're going to have to keep this under wraps. So like there's going to be other people who are involved who may be, you know, aware of this going on and who would have to keep it secret so we're talking about 60 or 70 people now bear in mind rugby people are the chattiest people on the fucking planet when it comes to any bit of drink on board whatsoever they are telling you everything right they would all these 70 people would somehow have to keep this secret for the rest of their lives because again this is illegal what they would be doing they would be match fixing um so it's absolutely it's certainly plausible that there's a minute chance that 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 like that the result might organically come about, but the idea that it would be fixed, ridiculous. And I, I suppose that the main questions have been, well, how did the coverage of this come about? Well, first of all, it was a down week, right? Both South Africa and Ireland have a well. South Africa are finished now in the pool stages, so they kind of have a week off. So straight away, a little micro silly season begins. Ireland have been in the midst of a silly season because we haven't played since the South Africa game, which was two weeks ago. 
the media in general, and I'm not just talking about the Irish media, I'm talking about the mainstream rugby media for the most part, has a very difficult time when there's no active rugby going on because they aren't all that interested in the game itself. If you look at a lot of the journalists and a lot of the the, the pundits, we'll say, that are covering the game, they don't really give too much of a shit about what's actually happening in the game itself. What they are interested in is who's being cut, who's being promoted, what is the the drama that's going on around the team. And when they don't have a, a team sheet or when they don't have a game to focus on, things can get a little bit squirrely. Things can get, they can start going off into the ether and you get these weird fucking media manufactured bullshitty segments where, you know, Jock Ninabar is asked about, hey, do you, do you think it's possible that Scotland and Ireland might collude to eliminate South Africa from the World Cup? It's possible. And Jacques Nienabar, look, I understand he's uh, English as a second language. I mean, it doesn't need to dignify that with a, with a response. He kind of says, I hope not. And the thing is, what you have to understand with a lot of these journalists is, is that when they hear something like, I hope not, Instead of going, oh, well, look, that was obviously a dumb fucking question that the likes of Andy Farrell and Paul O'Connell would, you know, decide, hey, let's give Scotland a big win at the World Cup. In Pedro Manny's 100th cap and in one of the last games of professional rugby that Johnny Sexton will ever play, let's walk into that meeting and tell them, hey, lads, we have to lose this weekend. We're deciding to lose because we want to get rid of South Africa. Yeah, the the, the team that you just beat last week. Like, it... it, it they don't think and go, oh, he's saying, I hope not. Oh, well, he didn't say it would never happen. He didn't say it was a ridiculous question. He said he hoped it wouldn't happen. That means it's a possibility. And this is how they think. So my cat, I think I think it was my cat. I think it was uh, Andy Farrell. Maybe he was asked about this during the week. I, I paid zero attention to pressures that I'm not on. I only, I only get the, if there's something interesting happened, I, I, I check it out in the aftermath. Long story short, my cat was asked a question by some some journalist, I don't know who it was, about the possibility of collusion happening. And again, I'm just like, do any of these lads have the bare basic cop on to realize that if this was happening, the last person who would tell you is one of the people who would be have to be involved in it, which is on this press conference, which is, again, open to the public, I presume. Like, they'll be posting everything. Like, imagine if he goes, yeah, hey, uh, my cat, are you planning on uh, colluding to kind of, you know, manufacture a result to get uh, the spring box out of the World Cup in the pool stages? He's just like, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, that's what we are. I, I, I know that uh, I am South African myself, because my, my cat is South African. Um, uh, but yeah, we've, we've decided to do something highly illegal. And I'm also going to tell you about it right now in this press conference. Oh, those mics and cameras aren't on, are they? They aren't recording, are they? Like, it's just, again, to even ask the question again, and I think people have framed this as, oh, well, we had to ask. It's like, like, bro, no, you didn't. You didn't have to fucking ask. You could just go, you know what? That isn't happening. That's in the realm of fantasy. That's in the realm of, you know, blue tick reply guy Twitter. So I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to have a bit of respect for myself and my profession. I'm going to just use my brain and realize that it's a ridiculous question and you don't even bother asking it. Maybe ask about the game on Saturday where there's two teams who actually do want to go out there and fucking beat each other. Maybe ask something about that. Again, look, we are not dealing with serious people. And I think the main takeaway from it is, is that it isn't happening. 
there's not a chance that it's happening. Yes, it's possible in the you know many million of permutations that could happen that the result may organically present itself. I think that is incredibly unlikely, um, but it is what it is. And I think that it's more of a reflection of the media coverage itself um, and the quality of it rather than any realistic chance of that situation happening in real life. Um, but again, look, sure, in the, in the week we've just had, like, guys do not function well when there's not a game to focus on. You know, we had, what, Jerk Gilroy, guy, he's 50 years of age. He's in his 50s. He's a fucking accomplished journalist. He runs an incredibly uh, uh, large, we'll say, sports branding off the ball. Um, and he's on there kind of going, me, 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 but Razzy Erasmus is like, and then Razzy Erasmus is sharing it. Fuck, like, come on. This is fucking embarrassing. Fuck. I know I make a bro to myself, but like as in, come on, that's part of my brand. I'm not sure if Off The Ball wants to be like reshared over and over again on South African Twitter and we'll say rugby Twitter with like the main man just doing the lamest impression <laughs> that you could ever fucking ask for. <laughs> Rezzy Erasmus. Like, oh my God. Anyway, look, I, the long story short and that is, they don't do well when there isn't a game to focus on, but there is rugby to focus on. So it, it, they will go anywhere and talk about anything. Um, and I think it just, it is what it is, which I hate saying, but in this case, it's about the most accurate thing that you could possibly say. Anyway, this is from Olkaka. Oh no, Olkalka. Uh, in the TRK Secret Club. You've said teams target Jack Conan on the restart. Apart from kicking him, uh, kicking to him with the ball what does this actually mean what are they trying to achieve and what are teams looking to achieve by targeting a player thanks well in in this instance um a lot of teams on the restarts look to try to target a certain player every team on a restart will have a certain structure that they'll have if you look at ireland for example we have two structures in our we'll say in our backfield on on a restart now there are shorter structures as well. Because again, like if you go and watch the restart, it is a bit of a set piece, right? The team will kick off. They will kick off either to the right, to the left, or to the center, more or less, okay? The opposition, the team receiving the kickoff, are going to have structures in place in all of those places to basically retain the ball. So what Leinster and Ireland have is a number of different structures for handling certain kicks into certain positions. If you watch Ireland coming up at the weekend against Scotland, for example, in one corner, it depends on who starts, by the way, if it's if it's Jack uh, Conan starting at eight or Caelan Doris starting at eight, whoever wears the number eight jersey for Ireland will typically be the primary receiver in the back right pin of the um, our, 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 our kick receipt structure, okay? Now, what that means is, is that they will be in a bit of space on their own, but far away from the opposition. So when the opposition decide to kick to them, they are taking that as being, well, we're happy to kick to this guy. You run up, you chase it, and you look to try to basically hammer that player so that you're not letting them get far away up, uh, up the field so that they basically are able to kick the ball further down the field. So you're starting on your next possession further down the field, okay? So you want to try and shut down that space as much as possible because you've kicked it about as far away as you can. Again, if you want to directly retain the ball, you would kick it short, just about over the 10 meter line. And you will see Ireland and, and Leinster do this as well, where they send the likes of Ryan Baird on a really short run to try to retain the ball in and around that, you know, we'll say 11 meters from the from the, the halfway line. So that you're, you're basically looking to challenge directly for the ball to retain it. 
But when you kick it further back, you're basically going, we will take the territory. And on the next phase, when we get the ball back, we want to be as close to the opposition try line or 22, we'll say, as possible. So why do teams kick at Jack Conan to try to target him specifically, right? The reason being is, is La Rochelle certainly have done this repeatedly. And the reason why they do it is, is because they feel that Jack Conan is not the best player in heavy traffic. So what they do is, they have a kickoff structure where they will look to see where is Jack Conan. He's in a receipt position. Where is that? Is that on the left of the field or is it on the right of the field? Because the other guy that Ireland use as a kick receiver is Bundy Aki, right? So he is a really good ball carrier as well. So what La Rochelle did is that they look at where Jack Conan is and they go, well, we will kick to wherever he is positioned, right? And they will also line up some of their heaviest front five forwards on the same line that Jack Conan is on, right? So if Jack Conan, we'll say, is on the the 15-meter line or maybe just inside it, they will line up all of their, you know, we'll say a prop, hooker, another prop, maybe one of their locks on that line as well. So when they kick the ball and look to try to get as much hang time as they can so that when Jack Conan is taking the ball in the backfield, he is basically... When he looks up, he's looking at a giant wall of humanity running towards him. And what La Rochelle felt was is that they could hammer him in that position so that, one, you might get a spill of possession, but whatever happens, Leinster will be locked in there, in like deep in their 22. And if they can hammer him in there, when Leinster kicked the ball up the field, they'll either get it a line out in a workable position, or if Leinster looked to try to keep it infield, La Rochelle would get the position where they're able to advance from a position when they receive the ball that is closer to the Leinster 22 or try line, whatever, whatever. Some teams, you know, oh, look, we're looking to get onto the try line or we're looking to get to a 22. That's how they would look to try to build it. So what, what La Rochelle felt was is that Jack Conan is a guy who is a good carrier in the wider channels, but when he has to go one-on-one with heavier defenders, he is likely to lose that collision that will put breakdown pressure under Leinster, which means that their next phase, whatever happens, is going to be one where La Rochelle are controlling the impetus. And that's kind of what a lot of teams do when they're targeting somebody off a, you know, off a restart, for example. You're looking at, well, what is a, what, what do we feel is a weakness in this player? How do we manufacture a position where he is at his weakest and we are at our strongest? That's what the, the, the thought process on that is. And again, I think that's something where you pick your poison to a certain extent like Jack Conan I would agree that he isn't the biggest heavy ball carrier that that Ireland or or, or Leinster even have access to but you take that because he gives you a lot of other stuff as well and it's like it's just one of those things where you can't realistically be good at everything I mean there are some players who are you know generational talents who are really good at absolutely everything but you know most of the big teams like the, the elite level teams will find something in your game that they just want to show you more situations where you're weak and less situations where you can be strong because that's how they look to try to to take your strengths away from you. I hope I answered that question relatively well. Uh, This next one is from Jack. Could you speak a bit about the contract season in general for Munster this year? Absolutely. Um, Munster started their contracting this year pretty early, a little bit earlier actually than um, they would have done in previous seasons. Again, a lot of that is due to this being Graham Roundtree's first proper 
contract season with his feet under the table so to speak also the first one with Ian Costello as a sort of the overall head of rugby operations which again will give a little bit more space for Graham Rowntree to focus on you know detail rather than having to look on too big a picture because again I think again if you're a head coach um, and you your responsibility is for the on-field performance of the team there's only so much space that you have in your head to, to manage everything and I think that the um, the hiring of Ian Costello in that role is fantastic because he's a guy with a remit now who can start looking in you know two three five years down the road um, and you know for Munster to start contracting um, appropriately and again I think the big thing that we're looking at this season also is like if you look at last year right there was basically it was like a dunk into a you know, a, a, a barrel of ice cold water where there was a bit of a shock to the system in that we were doing something that was radically different from what had come before. What had come before had been variations of the same thing where, you know, when you look at the, the, the years under Anthony Foley and that coaching ticket, the year under Razzie, and then the five years under Van Cron and, 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 the, and, and Larkham, we'll say, as the two main coaching voices in that group, as the, the guys who gave the team the on-field identity for the most part. That leads to a number of players who were used to doing a certain thing and who thrived under an environment or who were at least that more valuable players than what they would be under a new environment, okay? So, Munster in that you know environment had a number of guys who straight away did not fit what they wanted they didn't have the they weren't either weren't a cultural fit or they didn't have the 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 role sets that the new you know the new coaching group required and there was a lot of guys who were moved out because or, or, or moved on because they either didn't fit what they were doing and like they were and it, it didn't make any sense for those guys to be sat around basically training all year you know and and it made sense to move them on as a result so there was a number of players who ended up moving or leaving the club mid-season um which again is is regrettable nobody really wants that to happen but you know and some of the time sometimes the players want to move on themselves they haven't been massively important guys under the the previous regime either they were seeing that the new regime wasn't playing them either so they just looked to try to move on and again that's natural that's the kind of stuff that happens in this game when you have a functioning environment what any club wants and what any proper player doesn't want is for fellas to be just sat around getting paid to train and players don't want to be sat around being paid to train either because they want to go out there and play they're not professional trainers so like that initial shock to the system was kind of causing an awful lot of churn in the group from a contractual perspective okay so you had guys like Dan Goggin leaving you had guys like Chris Farrell leaving uh, you had Malachi Fekitoa leaving early in a contract as well like that meant straight away you need to sign guys to replace them because midfield is a hugely important part of what this group is trying to do coaching group from a playing identity perspective your midfield is often in your personality of your team so the guys that were there didn't really suit and there was other issues at play too with the likes of Chris Farrell so you try to move on as best you can and this upcoming contract season is a chance for Munster to look at well we know this worked last year right this sort of play style so as a result with the guys who were off contract this year you have a bit of a job to do in that well well who do we keep and how do we you know how do we manufacture the group that we want by you know cutting the fellas who we don't want and then bringing in guys who fit the identity of what we need 
at this stage Munster I think have a really good feel as to the role types that they're looking for both in the short medium and long term so that's obviously a, a massive positive but when you when we look at the current contracts that are out of um, that are out of date this year you can see there's an opportunity again to to make because last year was a big big contract year right so straight away there's a few decisions that have to be made um, this year as a result now out of contract this year uh, in the tight hit prop group there's an awful lot of um, adjustments that are there to be done because we have one player who's contracted beyond the end of next season in tight head prop that is Roman Salanoa who is currently out with a knee injury uh, then you have Keenan Knox Stephen Archer and John Ryan who are all out of contract next year with Darren McSweeney in the academy who's on a one year rolling contract just because it's an academy contract so I would expect Darren McSweeney will get some opportunities this year um, but then you're looking at John Ryan and Stephen Archer who are both on veteran deals they I would say will one of them would be kept I would think and then you're looking at Keenan Knox basically has to have an, a, a, a few games this season where he just basically justifies why he should be staying at the club in the long term he's a guy who's been a project at Munster for a number of years he signed into the Munster Academy from South Africa I think it was Michael House in um in uh, South Africa obviously a really talented player he's been very unlucky with the knocks and niggles that he's had that have prevented him from getting any sort of playing momentum going at all um, but that leaves a, a big positional opportunity for Munster to go well look if we don't retain Keenan Knox and if we are losing the likes of Stephen Archer that gives us opportunity to maybe go look to sign a tight head prop next season I think that there's it's the most obvious place that Munster could go to look Ulster have a loose head prop signed. Michael Alalatoa in, in, in Stephen Kitchoff. By the way, Ulster have signed Stephen Kitchoff for this coming season. Michael Alalatoa is coming on to his last deal or last year at Leinster, I think. That would leave an opportunity given that Furlong is the number one guy, Finley Beenham is number two, Tom O'Too looks to be the main guy, uh, the young fella that they have coming up after that. So it would seem like there's an opportunity for Munster to go out and sign a tight head prop, I would say, just based on how the contracts are going. They will be making approaches and speaking to agents and stuff like that now if that is the case, right? At Hooker, sorry, at Loosehead, you have, uh, I think, Jeremy Lockman and Dave Kilcoyne are out of contract this coming year. I think you make a choice between, you know, uh, one or, 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 I'd say one or the other. I, I, I don't think both will be kept. Then you have uh, Mark Donnelly and Kieran Ryan in the academy as well. They will assess how those guys are going and then upscale them then based on, you have George Haddon as well, and then upscale one of those based on you know performance and, and, and look to try to fill out that loose head side which I think is a national priority I would say in the next um, couple of months they will have a decision made there at Hooker there is uh, Dermot Barron Scott Buckley and Chris Moore are all out of contract this year actually, I think actually Dermot Barron is on a longer term contract than that but um, they'll be making a decision between Scott Buckley and uh, Chris Moore I think uh, and look to try to bring somebody into the academy um, in the near future I would imagine uh, second row again that, that looks fairly certain there there's a decision to be made with uh, between Jean Klein and RG Snaim and I can imagine everybody else is signed up on the longer term Thomas O'Hearn Finney Mitchelly Tygburn Edwin Adogbo are all signed up beyond 2024 so it's between Jean Klein and RG Snaim and I would imagine uh, although I think Munster might make a pitch to try to keep both given the youth of Edwin Adogbo and uh, just how many injuries Thomas O'Hearn has had I think you could make a case that you can keep both there if needs be in the back row again I think there's lots of guys there who are on you know prove it deals uh, John Hodnett is off contract this season and I imagine he'll be a priority to get retained as well uh, Keen Hurley's on a one year deal Peter Manny's on a one year central deal 
whether he'll be negotiating with the IRFU or whether he's what the story is with his longer term playing deal or playing intent we'll say how long more does he intend to keep going that'll be completely up to him I'd imagine anytime he wants a contract I think it'll be there but that's the question going forward for there all the other guys have been retained to 2025 you've Coombs you've Kendallin you've Jack O'Donoghue but then you've got a lot of guys like Jack O'Sullivan Jack Daly Keen Hurley and they're all senior players who are on a they have a one like they're basically expiring at the end of the season so again there's kind of a bit of pressure there to 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 keep those guys um or to not keep them but for those guys to keep their spot in the squad i don't i don't think all three will be kept depend i think it depends on some of the role sets that are there earlier especially when you've got the likes of brian gleason uh ruan quinn who are coming up in the academy who are really really highly rated that puts a lot of pressure on those guys in particular i think in the back line uh, Craig Casey is on until 2026 uh, Paddy Patterson is off this year um, in his contracts off at the end of the season I think he'll be a priority re-sign as well you've got Connor Murray who expires at the end of this season as well uh, he's still playing really really well but he is on a, an IRFU central contract I think it comes down to how long does he want to keep playing I think that's going to be the main thing for him there um, then you have Neil Cronin who expires in December of this year um, I think he will be gone at the end of that and you have Ethan Coughlin and uh, Jack Oliver who were in the academy and I think both very highly rated in different ways fly half Jack Crowley he's on until 2025 he is the guy I think going forward then you have Joy Carberry who expires this season as well there's a decision to, a decision to be made there basically it's like you know do you keep him on at whatever he wants knowing that that's an expensive deal to keep around given his experience his international like his, his test caps the number like the, the status of a player like of, of Joey Carberry for him to be the number two because again look the idea of you know Crowley and Carberry competing against each other is nice and all but it's not something that I see being a long term situation at Munster because you basically want to settle on well this is our guy at 10 we're paying him our money at 10 you don't want to be paying two tens equivalent money because then you're that that's not a good use of budget in my opinion like if you've got a tier of guys who are like well this is my main guy we have a young backup or we'll say an experienced vet a guy who might be you know 33 34 or whatever else that you have on you know club friendly money and maybe a young fella in the academy and then a younger player then as well who's like kind of a you know an, an apprentice to both the, the veteran and to the main guy who you might be in his prime years that might be a good use of, of that but i don't think it'll be a case of well you've got your young main guy that you want to be your number 10 going forward but for Munster and ireland and then you're also paying a guy like Joey Carberry the kind of money that he would be due just based on his status in the game. I'm not sure if that's a good use of funds going forward beyond the end of uh, of this current season. Um, but we'll see how it plays out, obviously. Midfield, uh, you have Sean O'Brien, uh, Alex Nankivell, Rory Scanlon, Antoine Frisch are all expiring in 2025, so that's not a problem for this year. You've got Liam Coombs, who expires at the end of this season. That's a question that they'll have to ask themselves if that's, if you know, if his what his fitness is like what his performance levels are like and basically what the competition levels are like elsewhere because in the back three you have Shane Daly Mike Haley Paddy Campbell Andrew Conway are all expiring in 2025 and then you have uh, Calvin Nash as well and you have Simon Zebo who's also expiring this year and you have Keith Earls whose central contract goes up until the end of the World Cup I think so we're not sure what the crack is with that yet nothing's been fully announced as of yet but um, there there is not really much business to be done there either so that's kind of the, the situation that you know Munster are looking at from a contract perspective 
there's not a whole lot of business to be done. I mean, obviously, there's a few spots that there, you know, I'd say there's fellas need to be let go and, and guys need to be signed in in certain positions. But it's certainly not at the level that it was last year where there was an awful lot of business that had to be done. This year, there's a certain amount of business that you have to do, but there's nearly more business that you have to not do. Like, there's not a whole ton of guys there who I'd say, geez, we have to retain all of these guys and all, you know, the, the, the expense that comes with that. I'm not sure if that's the case here. But, um, you know, it's something that it's it's already begun in earnest anyway. Uh, Graham Rountree's contract being announced, because apparently it was in train for a while before, um, is a, a big settler in that, you know, players know who the, who, who the coaching team is going to be and they know who the... They know what the the identity of the club is going to be as well, as in that they know how they're going to be playing. That plays a large part, both in retaining guys and in recruiting guys. So we will see what happens in that. But it's um, I think it's a it's a, a decent situation to be. I think the main contracting work and the heavy lifting was kind of done last year. This year, there's a few tough decisions and maybe a few tough discussions with David Nusafora. But I would say that they'll they'll make a, a decision on it, and it, it it's most of the decisions of the decisions I think have already been made. So we will see how that goes um, as the, the the months progress. Um, here we go. Eugene says we joke about uh, Joe McCarthy and his rapid ascension, but are there any differences between his role and Klain's role, or is it a cohesion pick? Um, there are differences between what Joe McCarthy does and. It is also a cohesion pick. Um, what Ireland have done really well in the last couple of years is, um, and we've spoken about this on this platform a number of times, is they have made it so that there's very little in the way of of new information that fellas have to pick up. A lot of that was front-loaded into the first number of years. Guys who come into the camp now are either mostly onboarded by playing at Leinster or their fellas who've been in camp and you know have a lot of in-camp experience for a number of years before that for the guys who aren't in Leinster. What Ireland needed was they needed a little bit of power and and physicality in that pack. And Joe McCarthy is somebody who they've looked at and gone, this is a guy who is for the future, but because of the inbuilt experience that he has, is also a guy for now also. We can bring him in and not necessarily lose anything by having a fella who doesn't know our calls, doesn't know our our structure, has to learn all of those. He has to build up, you know, cohesion and uh, cohesion. I, I, I hate fucking saying it because you you just end up kind of saying it so often it loses like it loses all meaning, you know. But looking at how they um, looking at how they've used Joe McCarthy, it's a low risk move for them because in the same way that they brought Ty Furlong to the 2015 World Cup and he didn't really feature at all. Um, they look at Joe McCarthy as being a similar style player in that uh, he has the physicality that they want um, while also still being a style suitable player. Like, if you look at Joe McCarthy, he is listed as uh, 6'6". He is listed at around 120kg, well, 119 officially, but in and around that 120kg uh, mark. That would be about as heavy as this team can go with regards to getting in second rows and back five players who have to be very, very mobile in this Irish system, as we've discussed. So Joe McCarthy gives them, and what they hope in the future gives them also, the sort of tight power that they need, but also decent levels of mobility as well. And it's not that John Clayne is is not very mobile, because I think he's actually far bit more mobile than what he, get, what he gets credit for. But he is six foot eight, he is 125 kg. He is a he has a heavyweight tight headlock, right? And 
Like, he's not a guy who I would say is suitable for playing in a high-tempo, high-efficiency system where we need this guy to be making some really accurate screen passes because that's what a lot of the Irish back five players are required to do more often than not. What John Clain does really well is the more physical, tight stuff, which Ireland don't need to the same regularity because the systems are different, so they produce different scenarios that require different builds of players. For the Springboks, they saw John Clain as being a guy who was very comfortable playing an on-ball system of rugby with Munster. So he can pass the ball really well when, when required. But again, he's not a guy who would want to be loading up with you know eight or nine passes and looking to try to... Like, again, that to me is not a good use of resources. You want this guy to be a big scrummager. You want him to be a big mauler for you. You want him to be a tight ball carrier so he's able to you know basically retain the ball and hit certain areas of the line to pressurise the opposition. You want him to be clearing out breakdowns. You want him to be a, an impact hitter in defence. And again, you want to pair him with somebody who's as big and as powerful. Jean, uh, RG Snayman, by the way, is listed at the moment as six foot nine and 130 kg is what he's listed as uh, on the Munster site at the moment, which would make him around, playing at north of 20 stone. Like, that's Will Skelton numbers, right? So again, you don't want to go too light with the guy who's next to him. So when you start looking at your your system and how different builds and how different play styles rather require different builds of players to make the system work Munster and South Africa are looking to try and play a game where both sides are looking to retain the ball over longer periods so you need heavier players who are going to be able to retain the ball and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be covering an awful lot of ground up and down the field McCarthy and his rapid ascension is one they have an eye towards the future and there is precedent of bringing in younger players who don't necessarily play a massive part in the World Cup, but they get the experience of it and you have a better player, we'll say, the year after the World Cup than what you would if you hadn't brought him, okay? So you have that, but plus he's the best of both worlds as far as, they can con- as, far as they're concerned in that Ireland kicked the ball an awful lot. Ireland kicked the ball to a medium and long distance quite an awful lot. So what that means is, is that your tight five, and you know your tight five has two guys who are also in the back five, they end up having to cover an awful lot of ground they have to be very mobile to cover that. They also have to have the fitness to cover that that, that space. Because if, if I'm kicking from, we'll say, inside the 10-meter line down to the opposition's 22, they take the ball and they run it and they kick it back. My forwards the entire time are moving up and down the field. They're shuttling up and down. Because Ireland lo- loves starting sequences like that and, and their game is based on transition defense. Your tight five has to be mobile enough to make that work. Jean Klein at 6'8", 125 kg, you don't want to be running that guy up and down the field like that. In the same way that you wouldn't want to be running Will Skelton up and down the field too much like that because that's not what they're good at. What they're good at is helping you retain the ball for 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 phases because whenever they get the ball, they have the power and size to win the collision, win the gain line and let you play on again. Different styles require different types of players and Joe McCarthy is a nod to the fact that Ireland need size and they need tight power which I think Joe McCarthy has but also he's not too big or too powerful enough that he's not able to run you know have one of the core the core areas of their game which is a lot of mobility in the back five now the, the second rows don't have to be as mobile as the back row certainly do but they have to have like that, that ability to go up and down the field and with, with John Klain um, it, I, it would be a waste of his talents I think 
to be in a situation like that where Ireland's play style requires certain types of players. Now, you can argue whether the play style should be adapted to include guys like that, but Ireland's number one in the world. They're unbeaten in 16 games. You know, like, you have to take that on board also. Um, Alex says, Hi Tom, I'm looking ahead to the Scotland game and I'm wondering how much of a threat are they? The squad is super talented but seems to just have a mental block when it comes to their biggest occasions. Have they got another gear to kick into or have they reached their ceiling? Also, this feels like their golden generation. Have they got players to look forward to in the future or might we see Scotland's ability fall back again? Uh, Thanks for the question, Alex. I think that this is a very good Scotland side. They have had really good results against the likes of um, France, certainly, and England in the last number of years. I think one of the biggest issues that they found as a mostly on-ball team and as an, an attack transition team that they've run into big trouble against Ireland mostly because Ireland are a really good counter-transition team. So Ireland kicked the ball at a high volume. As a result, that gives Scotland a lot of opportunity to attack on attack transition. But Ireland have the best transition defence, I think, in the world and have, and have done for the last two or three years. So that area of strength for Scotland is negated by Ireland's strength. And I don't think they have the the structure in their phase play or the power to be able to play through Ireland then off the back of that. So when you look into certain aspects of their of their their lineout being really good for the most part until they play Ireland because Ireland's defensive lineout is really really good. Their scrum is something I'm worried about for sure. As for a mental block, I I, you know, I think sometimes this comes down to like what some people might call a mental block they would look at well we're sticking to our principles of play and our principles of play are just like it matches up really poorly with Ireland at the moment in that a lot of the things they're really good at are the kind of things that Ireland are really good at shutting down and I, I think it's it's just like that like that has been a factor for, for Scotland whenever they've played Ireland in, in, in the recent past and that they've come close to certain games that they absolutely should have won like they should have won back when Ireland lost Kelleher and then Sheehan but Scotland just refused to play off ball rugby where basically they were just looking to kind of get the ball off the field down as far to the Irish 22 as they could and then pressurise make Josh van der Feer play a uh, throw by putting up two pods into the air to try and get after him they didn't do that because that's not their principles of play. That's not how they want to play. So for good or ill, and like, it's a bit like saying to Ireland, okay, well look, just go play like 2019 South Africa. Like we can't, like, that's not how we train. So that's not what we do, if you know what I mean. So um, as for their golden generation, I think it actually, you're writing that it's a golden generation. Finn Russell, I think is one of the best players that they've ever had. He's an outstanding talent. You might say there's certain things over his game management and his temperament in certain situations, but I think as an actual player, forget all that other stuff, uh, skill-wise, very, very good. Uh, you look at guys like Hamish Watson, who's kind of fallen back a little bit now. And again, this is a guy who was, you know, involved in the Lions, you know, considered one of the best small forwards in the game a couple of years ago. They've got a, a more physical back row now. I think in their tight five, they've got like Pierre Schumann, I think is a great player. And he's one of their, their core players, actually. But I'm looking at the other players in their front five, and that's an area where I think Ireland will stack up really well. Um, outside backs are really good. Like their midfield, you know, Hugh Jones and uh, Sione Tuapalato are really, really good. Back three are as good as you get anywhere, I think. Blair Kinghorn is really good. Their wingers, Darcy Graham is a fabulous player. Absolutely unreal. Duane van der Merve as well. Um, again, look, they've got good players, but I think fundamentally, when they come up against Ireland and with the way Ireland play, it just, uh, Ireland are able to shut down what Scotland are really good at in a way that France aren't able to 
you know so like Scotland I think are more likely to be France at the moment than what they are Ireland now again anything can happen but um, I, I think that it's more likely that, that Ireland shut down what Scotland are good at rather than the other way and I think that that allows like Ireland are, are more likely then to kind of structure and kind of process out Scotland rather than having to you know go too deep into the well to beat them which you know I, I don't mean it to sound arrogant because again look Scotland could easily win this game like I mean they're a good side and if, I, if Ireland play poorly I think it's it's more than possible but I think it's um, uh, in the long term by the way I'm not sure what talent they have coming through from underneath so um, this is probably their best opportunity for a number of years I would say um, but yeah that kind of puts a lot more drama and a lot more uh, attention on the uh, on this game when you consider that it's the last chance for a lot of these guys I think uh, Pumpkin says Hi Tom the last few times we've played South Africa the point is made that they don't rate us as highly physically especially around Razzie's 2019 the Irish are soft compared to the Welsh uh, thing will the win on the weekend change that opinion or will they feel that they can still get that decisive edge in us I think it's certainly changed some of the conversations around us from what I've heard from guys involved in the game in South Africa that game against Ireland reminded some of the, the coaches that I speak to below in South Africa of Ireland versus the All Blacks when the All Blacks were kind of at their best in that obviously the, 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 the South Africans are like they have a lot of size on us in certain areas but you know we're every bit as big in some aspects and the physicality and the aggression that we played with at the breakdown certainly added an awful lot um, to evening up the score with regards to the set piece when the scrum wasn't a massive factor in the game due to really good scrummaging by, by Andrew Porter and Ronan Kelleher um, that kind of just brought the game back to a really physical contest where Ireland are really good defensively technically very good uh, in, in, in the tackle and at the breakdown and once you're at that high enough level like you know you can match up really well with these guys physically and I think that's what Ireland did I don't think Ireland or South Africa think that Ireland are soft now uh, I think that that might have been through in 2019 I'm not sure if it's fully true now at all like as in that, that that they think that maybe they might say it to try and G up the lads but you know fucking I don't I don't think that realistically it would stand up to any scrutiny at all um, I, I think that South Africans will always think that when it comes down to it when the game's at its biggest that they can get that physical edge but I think that game uh, in, in Stade de France two weeks ago I think that was one of those ones where you come away with a lot more respect for Ireland off the back of it, off the back of it physically, because South Africa one hundred percent came for us in that game. I've seen a lot of nonsense online about about holding stuff back. It's another questionnaire in the middle about holding things back. You can hold back a few small bits and pieces, like you know one or two things here or there, but you're out there to win the game. And like this idea that there's like all these individual mad power plays and you know crazy set piece moves that you're holding in, you know that's not really the way it works anymore you've one or one or two small things yeah and if you're asked about it you'll say oh yeah yeah we have one or two small things all right but what you see on the field is what you're training for the most part now you might have a few individual things you've lined up because you've seen something in the opposition that you might be able to exploit with we'll say a, a one or two phase special but like that's not something that you've been keeping in fucking storage for two years you know it's like it's just one of those things um but yeah no i think that they certainly don't think the irish are soft no anyway that's for sure um 
This next one is, uh, Hi Tom, it's been widely said that the South Africa teams moved in, moving to the URC has been a game changer for the Irish provinces and a detriment to the Australian New Zealand club sides. Do you think that the new league system from 2026 onwards will be a further game changer but for the Irish international team? We hold little fear of the French or English teams anymore now that we're on par with them organisational wise and play them once a year. Do you think that familiarity of playing a New Zealand or Australian side twice every two years means that we're going to get closer to them constantly or does a touring side learn more from their wins and losses? Um, I think that it's actually the opposite way in that uh, the Australian New Zealand sides they need to get up to the level of the Northern Hemisphere at the moment certainly Australia like New Zealand I think are, are decent but I still, I still think there's a big fluctuation in, in their in their game that's up and down like a lot of people have been falling in love with them over the the, the Italian game Italy were brutal first of all but if you go to a, just a regular November you'd expect New Zealand to beat, to beat Italy fairly considerably right so the idea that they were ever really in danger of losing that game off the back of their loss to, to France, which by the way, it's a, it's a record loss for them in the World Cup. I'm not sure that that like it sticks up to scrutiny. And I think that um, this uh, World League that's going to be, like, that, 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 that is being spoken about coming in, I just think it'll give New Zealand and Australia a chance to, you know, basically make sure that they're still at the level of the rest of the rugby world, which is kind of happy enough like you know, when you look at the, the Six Nations I think is a really good tournament the the level of rugby that's being played in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment is the best it's ever been and I think certainly relative to the Southern Hemisphere so um, I think that with New Zealand Ireland have no fear of New Zealand anymore absolutely not like that would have been true in 2015 but in 2023 it is absolutely not true we, 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 we beat them more often than that when we play them now which is mad to think about but it's true like, we have no fear of any team at all France maybe you might say maybe but absolutely nobody else this Irish team is afraid of without doubt like uh, thanks for the question Dave uh, OK says what do you see as realistic goals for each province this season um, thank you for the question um, I think that it is for Ulster vibes in Ulster don't seem great I think it would be realistic for Ulster that they should be happy enough. Well, do you know what? I won't say they should be happy enough because, like, they've bought in Stephen Kitchoff on a lot of money for three years. Like, Dave Ewers is in as well, but when you bring in a guy like Steve Kitchoff, that is, you're basically going, we want to win now, right? I think for Ulster, like, they've got to be making a semi-final at the URC um, for it to be considered a baseline successful season. Make the knockouts of Europe you know, because again, you can get a rotten draw there, and and, and you know your your season is done in Europe. But I'd say get to the knockouts in the in 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 Europe semi final of the URC. Uh, for Connacht, they're going through a bit of a rebuild. They got new coaching voices in there. Um, the post Andy Friend era, they've looked pretty good from what I've seen in preseason. Um, I think a good result for them would be finishing top seven, get Champions Cup again for next year. Um, you know, see what happens in the quarterfinals. Um, then look at the in the European Cup. Get yourself into um, the uh, knockouts and see how it goes. That's like again. I think that you 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 just have to kind of take each game as a well, win your home games, and then see what happens. I think that's like um, that has to be the aim. Uh, for Leinster, uh, win the European Cup and win the URC. That's the a realistic goal for them and for Munster it is get to a semi-final in Europe at least 
um, and then get to the final of the URC again and look to try and win it again. That would be the goal, I think, for both sides. Um, I think it's something that's realistic for Munster, certainly. Um, I think for Leinster as well, you just look at the money they're spending, you look at the talent in the group. Yeah, they're bringing in, um, they're bringing in uh, Jacques Niedebar. There'll be a bit of coaching disruption there. Like the start of their season is going to be a bit, of, a, a bit disrupted, but the talent in the group is there and it's the first season after you know Paul Sexton we assume if he, if he if he does indeed retire after the World Cup it's going to be their first season Paul Sexton so that'll put a bit of pressure on you know like on guys to perform but there's no reason why that Leinster team shouldn't be making the, the final of both tournaments they play in um, and for Munster URC champions you'd at least want to get to the final the next year um, and look to try and defend in the final in a one-off game and last year like the performance away against the Sharks was poor um, and I think that with the group we have we should be you know finishing with a high enough seeding get a few home knockout games off the back of that and then see what happens if you get to a semi-final who knows who you could meet and if it's a if it's one where you manage to get drawn at home you'd look to try and win that if it's in we'll say if it's in Porky Cueve that's something where you go fuck it whoever we're playing we should be winning that so yeah it'll be an interesting one but I think, I think they're realistic goals for all the provinces um this one is from Prop Winger. Uh, likely one for a future mailbag, but for Italy, with the change from Crowley to Caseda, are we likely to see them move from an on-ball style to counter-transition, or is the on-ball the best fit for the players available? Um, I think that they're going to move to a kind of a more counter-transition style with their, 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 their overall framework. I think because it suits them better. Like, honestly, the, the on-ball style that they have through Crowley, it worked at Benetton, and it's worked with Italy to a certain level. But again, they are not winning games regularly in the Six Nations. I think they've what won one, which is great. But like on ball, I think does not suit when once they go to test level. The skill level and the the margin for error is so low. Like the skill level required is so high, the margin for error is so low that it's almost impossible for them to play it unless they have world class talent. And I'm not sure they do. Certainly not in their pack. Um, they've got very good players, but I think counter transition would suit them a little bit better. Now, I think the reason why they went on ball is is probably sensible in that you've got Paolo Garbisi there. He's a great on ball fly half. You've got a lot of forwards who are big, heavy players and you don't want them to be doing too much in the way of running that isn't them running with the ball in hand. Um, but I think they kind of have to make that change to kind of maybe make themselves a little bit tougher to beat, uh, play with a little bit more... Uh, verticality in their game where they're getting the ball up and down the field they may need some personnel requirement you know changes in, in that I think those changes will be coming regardless but I think that's what they will do in the long term uh, because it's the most pragmatic decision for them to make from a style perspective because again playing the right way and being a fun watch only takes you so far in this game as we've seen in this World Cup um Aiden says, was the New Zealand performance something to worry about against Italy or was it just Italy shooting themselves in the foot over and over and over again? It's them shoot Italy being really poor and matching up really badly against a good counter-transition team and then making so many mistakes and playing so below yourself. I'm not sure it's anything to worry about with, with New Zealand. Like, they were a team to worry about anyway. I'm not sure I saw anything in that game that would make me think that um, what we're looking at there is, oh, geez, the All Blacks, they're back. They beat a very poor Italian team out the gate, which I would expect them to do regardless, outside, be it in a World Cup or not. So I think for me, it's um, 
not something to be overly concerned about any more than what you already would have been about the All Blacks, which are obviously they're a good team. Could they beat Ireland in, in that quarterfinal? Should we make it and they make it? Absolutely. Absolutely they could. But that is, you know, nothing I saw against Italy would make me think that more or less, if that makes sense. Elvino asks, Hi Tom, just finished your article on Graham Rountree. After seeing the very short list of winning coaches, I was wondering why Mark McCall rarely comes up when people are discussing future England or Ireland coaching. Is he so tainted by the Saracens cheating scandal or is it a style thing? Perhaps it's just England see him as Irish and we consider him as an English coach. Very few of the coaches on the list have been as successful as him. Mark McCall has been incredibly successful. Incredibly successful. Like, you look at what he managed with Saracens and it says, forget about the cheating for a second, right? Which I know is mad to say, but like, they weren't doing anything from a budget perspective that the likes of the Irish clubs wouldn't do, right? Because there's no salary cap here. Yeah, they were skirting the laws of their own league. Fair enough. But there's plenty of teams who spend a lot of money and they don't be as dominant as what Saracens were for that period in the last number of years. They got relegated. He stayed there. They've come back. They won the league again. Which again, I think is more of a reflection of how poor the Gallagher Premiership is really. Because I think Saracens are still a really good team. But they're still the best team in that league, I think, regardless of their relegation the previous year and, you know, everything that came with it. But when it comes to Mark McCall, he's very much a sort of an overall organiser, right? Like he's not a guy who's going to be very much hands-on with the coaching. Like he is a head coach. He has a massive team of coaches who are around him, who he has assembled, but they do the like the, the, the majority of the coaching from what I understand of the Saracen system. He is more of a kind of a, an overall director of rugby there rather than being an on-field head coach. So if he was looking to be coming and, and to, to replace anybody, it would be the likes of David Nusifora, I think, rather than Andy Farrell or whoever because he's more of an an overseer right now obviously he's one of the very best that there is at that but when you sign in Mark McCall it's not necessarily about oh well we're getting this style of rugby off the back of it you'd basically be bringing in his ability to recruit others to come in and implement the vision and set a culture for diverting our organization which as we've seen at, at Saracens he has done incredibly well there like obviously because they've been really successful but that work that he's done there is as good a job as you'll see anybody do in this game one they love him there so tempting him away from Saracens would be very very difficult but two there's not many places are looking for a guy with that skill set they need somebody who's going to be on field for them now right so who like we'll say for example like you look at if you're signing a Graham Rountree or, or a you know Mike Prendergast we'll say or whatever else they come in with a certain on-field vision and they're on-field implementing that. Whereas Mark McCall is more of an overseer and he will hire the guys who would then be the guys who would be the identity of of the on-field playing thing. Because Saracens don't have a distinct style of play. Like, they have a distinct style of play now, but it's not inherent to Saracens, right? They've changed up. Like, they've they've become more of an on-ball team now away from the sort of the off-ball heavy kick pressure team they would have been a few years ago. Like, they made that change and he has guys who just came in and made that change because he's got the the, the, the intellect and he's got the overall vision to make that happen and it's kind of one of the, one of the best things about him but the reason why I think he hasn't been involved or, or, or you know spoken about in that manner is because maybe you're right maybe maybe Irish rugby bubble season is being an English coach now um, but he's more of an, an overseer rather than somebody who comes in to fix your problems on field now which I think is probably the, the when most coaches or unions are going looking for a coach 
they're looking for somebody on field now rather than some fella who'll come in and set an overall culture and hire coaches who will be the on-field guys like if you were looking for some and again I think this is why David Nusifora he'd be a great replacement for him but I think from a coaching perspective I think that it's a different unions and other like certainly the Irish union looks for different things from a guy like that if you're going to be making a hire it wouldn't be a fella like that like I said if they're replacing David Nusifora Mark McCall would be probably the best option to do it but yeah so thank you very much for sending in those uh, questions if you have any other questions for next week's one send it in at info at kingscom and I will include it uh, or leave it in the TRK mailbag channel on the TRK Secret Club anyway thank you very much for joining me I hope you enjoy the rest of your week I'll talk to you again very very soon